If you turn to page 1205 in the Turquoise Bible, we're reading from Hebrews 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, the priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descendants from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection come, sorry, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood was, is changed, the law must be changed also. He of, of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever... He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Hey, some weeks praying that God would give us understanding seems more relevant, doesn't it? Melchizedek. I do have Hebrews 7 open on your knee. You're a better person than me if you can remember what's just been read to you for the next 25 minutes of your life. And we are going to be looking at that. Hebrews 7, you'll need it open on your knee. I'll be referring it back. You'll need your app open or whatever. Um, So do have that. I'm going to pray now because sometimes we come to bits of the Bible um, and we think, oh, that's interesting. What's that about? So let's pray that God will give us understanding. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great passage about the high priest Melchizedek and our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we come to it, so by the power of your spirit, you'd speak into our hearts, you'd speak truth, and through it, we would see that this is the best news in the world, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. And there are some sheets uh, that Josh has been handing around. Josh, you've been handing these around, mate? For the JF guys, so anyone in JF or uh, anyone who'd like a sheet, stick your hand up and Josh will bring you one of those uh, now. I wonder what you think your greatest need is. Maybe you're thinking, well, I I just could do with a regular income or maybe just a little bit more income. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, uh, well, if if I had career prospects, that'd be nice. A job that that looked like it was going to improve my status, my life. Uh, A job at all. Uh, maybe you've got a young family you're thinking, hey, children who obeyed me, that, that would be a blessing that I could do with. I'll run with that. Or possibly you're thinking, hey, it's been a bit snowy for a while. It's a bit chilly. I could do with a bit of winter sunshine. What do you think your greatest need is? Well, this Bible passage that was just read to us, Hebrews 7, says this. It claims that Jesus meets our greatest need. Did you see that down in verse 26? Such a high priest truly meets our need. And not our needs, like our shopping list of life, but our need, the one thing we need more than anything else. And that one thing, according to this passage, is to draw near to God. Did you see that in verse 19? That's what Jesus enables us to do. At the end there, we draw near to God. That is our greatest need. Whoever you are this morning, actually whatever you believe this morning, your greatest need is to draw near to God. Why? Well, because God is the source of all life. He's the source of all love. He's the source of mercy and strength. He's the source of joy and peace and kindness and power. He's not just the one who created all things. He's the one who keeps the show on the road. He's the one who rules all things. Even if you don't believe that he exists, he is the one who is giving you life. And your greatest need is to draw near to him, to enjoy a relationship with him, 
to find comfort and help and security and purpose in Him. That is what we are all made to do. Of course, our godless culture tells you you've got to find all those things in yourself. It says you have to be the source of your own comfort and and strength and purpose and security and hope. You have to love yourself, have peace within yourself, find power within yourself to do it. And if only you practice enough mindfulness or yoga or whatever the latest navel-gazing technique is, you really can do it. You can find it in yourself. Of course, the problem is that doesn't work, does it? And it doesn't work because you were made to draw near to God. And chapter 6 last week put it another way. It said this. At the end of chapter 6, it said that Jesus was the anchor for our soul. Uh, That he was the one who gave us a firm and secure hope in life. And at the end of chapter 6, it explained why Jesus was like that. At the end of chapter 6, verse 20 said this about the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that clears that up then, doesn't it? He's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I can feel now my life is more purposeful. I can feel my my worries drifting away just as I repeat those words. He's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But actually, that is the best news in the world for you today that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I want to spend a few moments explaining why from from Hebrews 7. See, our writer starts in Hebrews 7 by taking us back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and an incident that happens in Genesis chapter 14. And he says in Hebrews 7 verse 1, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, And blessed him. Back in Genesis 14, the great forefather of the Old Testament people of God, Abraham, comes back from a battle where he's defeated kings, and we read of a guy called Melchizedek coming out to meet him. He's described as a priest. In fact, he's the first priest in the Bible. Now, you might not have a lot to do with priests in your lives, but for the first readers of Hebrews who were Jewish background Christians, priests they knew all about. You see, they had to relate to God through priests as Jews. Our building here is a wonderful illustration of this, yeah? Because if you imagine in the temple, God hung out behind a big curtain like this called the Holy of Holies. His presence was symbolically behind the curtain. And the priest was the one who, when you made a mess of life and couldn't relate to God, made an animal sacrifice for you and then took it through the curtain and presented it to God so your relationship with God was restored. These Jewish readers, they knew priests were important. So Melchizedek was the first priest ever mentioned in the Bible. He's also, more than the priest, he's a king. He's a king who rules over the city of peace, Salem, Jerusalem. And this priest and king, he's so great that Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish people, gives him a tenth of the plunder he's just got from the battle. That's what we're told in verse 2. And even more, have a look in verse 3 with me. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
We don't know who Melchizedek's parents were. They're never mentioned. We never hear of Melchizedek dying. The writer says, doesn't he remind you of someone? And of course he reminds us of someone. Those words that are used to describe Melchizedek, king, priest, righteousness, peace, forever. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, those words make you think, oh, there's only one person they remind me of, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what you're supposed to think. Because right from the start of the Bible, what our writer is saying is, is here is one who hints to us there will be somebody who's a king and a priest, somebody who will bring peace and right relationship with God, someone who is greater than even the greatest people in the Old Testament, Jesus. Look how great this Melchizedek is, says the writer in verse 4. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Greater than Abraham, founder of the whole Jewish race. But because Abraham gives a tenth of the plunder, and Abraham gets blessed by Melchizedek. And you, you know, don't you, that to be blessed, you're blessed by someone who's greater than you. And Melchizedek's greater than Levi, says the writer that the tribe who God's law said had to be those priests in the Old Testament. Uh, those priests who, apart from making sacrifices, collected a tithe, 10% of the people's income to be used for God's purposes. Well, well, look what happens with Melchizedek. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek collected 10% from Abraham, even though he wasn't a priest in the order of Levi. In fact, the writer goes on to say in verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Got a little diagram to help you with this. It literally says Levi was in the loins of his ancestor. What the writer is saying, it's as though even all those Levitical priests were paying the tithe to Melchizedek because back then, Abraham, he was the only one of God's people. And the tribe of Levi, well, they were from Abraham. In fact, Levi was his sort of grand-grandson. And therefore, it's as though the whole family, the whole of God's people were acknowledging Melchizedek was their, their king, and, and as though Levi himself was paying a tithe to him. And now for the Christians who came from a Jewish background, who are hearing Hebrews, they know, oh, there's no one more important than Abraham. He's the one who all God's people come from, the forefather of our faith. And there's no one more important than those Levitical priests. They're the only way that we used to be able to relate to God. Do you see what the writer said so far? Point one, there's a king and priest in the Old Testament. His name is Melchizedek. Point two, he's greater than Abraham. He's greater than all those Levitical priests. And the next time Melchizedek gets mentioned in the Bible, well, it's about 1,000 B.C. in a psalm, Psalm 110, written by King David. It's a psalm all about the Messiah, God's chosen rescuing king. Uh, the Messiah who smashes the enemies of God. In fact, we've read from this psalm already in Hebrews. If you turn back to Hebrews 1, 13. 
describing the Lord Jesus. The writer says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Saham 110 tells us this king will defeat all of God's enemies. But also it tells us that he is a priest. So in chapter 5 and verse 6, we read forever, we read him quote Psalm 110 again. He says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is like Melchizedek because he is king and he is priest. And that is great news for you and me. Why is it such good news? Well, look at, look at verse 11 with me of Hebrews chapter 7. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and need the law given to the people establish that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Do you see that word there, perfection? It's one of the things that we're willing to admit when we get something wrong, isn't it? Well, I'm not perfect. By which we mean, well, come on, everyone gets stuff wrong. But we were made to be perfect. You see, this word perfection here has the sense of being a complete person, a finished article. Not simply just good enough. Not something that, well, if you tried a bit more, it would be improved upon. No, this is perfect. And the Old Testament law, that could never make you perfect, says our writer. Those Old Testament priests with their sacrifice, they could never make you into the the person you were supposed to be. Because we needed a new priest, a priest who's not appointed because of being descended from Levi, a priest appointed by a different way. Look down at verse 14 to what he says of the Lord Jesus. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek comes, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not an Old Testament priest. No, he's like Melchizedek, a priest appointed by God. And he's got the perfect qualification to be a priest for us forever because, verse 16, he has an indestructible life. That doesn't mean that Jesus can't die. No, it means that the power that has raised Jesus from the dead means that he is now alive forever for us. And so the writer quotes Psalm 110 in verse 17. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is like Melchizedek. And therefore, he can save us forever. Again, the writer explains in verse 18 and 19, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Those Old Testament sacrifices, they were weak and useless. In the end, they didn't deal with the problem that we have fully and finally, our sin, our broken relationship with God. But Jesus does. He can make us perfect. Perfect so we can draw near to God. That's the better hope we can have in the Lord Jesus. Not hope in ourselves 
I hope I'll, I'll sort myself out or I'll make a life for myself or I'll, I'll learn to love myself or be myself or find myself or fulfill myself. Not, not even hope in a, a set of religious rules and ritual that'll sort me out, but hope in Jesus, that he'll sort me out perfectly so I can draw near to God. And that is so important that God has sworn that he's going to, through Jesus, accept us. That's what the writer says again in verses 21 and 22 of Hebrews 7. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. A better hope. Jesus lives forever so you can draw near to God. A better covenant. A covenant is the way that God relates to his people, the relationship. So back in the Old Testament, God said, if you obey me, then you will remain my people. And when they disobeyed him, he gave them those Levitical priests who made the sacrifices. But now with Jesus, it's a better covenant, a better relationship. Because with Jesus' sacrifice, there's no need to keep going back to a a temple or, or to priests no, Jesus deals with our sin forever. That's for two simple reasons. He lives forever. Did you see that down in verse 23 and 24? Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So those Old Testament priests who, who made the animal sacrifices, well, in the end, they died. And you had to find another one from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus lives forever. Therefore, he has no successor. He doesn't need a successor. He can maintain our relationship with God all the time. And that relationship is about not the sacrifice of animals he makes that are weak and useless. No, they're about the sacrifice of his life at the cross. And so verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus offers not an animal, a, a, a lamb or a, or a goat or, or a pigeon. He offers himself. And why is offering himself able to deal with the, not just the, the sin of, of one person, but deal with the rebellion against God of all those who trust in him? What, what do you see what Jesus is like in verse 26? Holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, that there was not a spot on him, that the quality of his life was perfect. Therefore, he could have our wretched, failed, sinful lives applied to his life. He could bear our sin in his body and die for it. More than that, he's now exalted above the heavens. He is in the right place to deal with our sins. 
he was raised and has ascended into the throne room of God in the presence of the very one we've offended. It's important you understand what sin is primarily. Sin is to offend the God who's made you and gives you life by rejecting him. We do it sometimes all of our lives, are lived with no reference to God, but we all do it a lot of the time simply by moment by moment living for ourselves and ignoring God. Sometimes we do it knowledgeably, but because we disobey the things we know God has told us that we should be doing, sometimes we do it carelessly by just getting on and living for ourselves and not considering others. But, but all of that is to offend the one who has made us. And Jesus is the one who deals with that offense. He's not limited like earthly priests who come and go. He's not limited by earth, like earthly priests who, who have to deal with their own sin and the issues in their own lives. No, he is totally different. He has died once for all to deal with our sin, and now he lives forever to make us right with God. He is completely suitable. That's what the writer says in verse 28. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who's been made perfect forever. There's that word again, perfect, completely suitable for the job of making you right with God. Now, over our series in Hebrews, we've seen that, that Jesus is like us. He's, therefore, our sympathetic high priest. But, but what we see here is that Jesus is unlike us. He's totally different, totally pure, totally good, and therefore able to take the punishment our sin deserves. Now, why is that such good news? Well, we'll look at verse 25. It's the, the one verse we haven't dealt with. It's our application for this morning. Verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He saves completely. Literally, it says he saves all perfect. All the time, he makes us perfect before the God we've offended. It has sense of both the quality of what he does for us and the, the quantity, the time he does it for us. He saves us totally. He deals with all our sin. He saves us in all our struggles. He'll finally take us from all our suffering into a perfect new creation. He maintains our relationship with God through all the difficulties of life. And he does it forever. He'll keep doing that every moment of every day until we don't need saving anymore, until we're with him. You see, we can always come to God through Jesus because he's constantly interceding for us. That's what verse 25 says. That, that doesn't mean that he's alive and sort of pleading with his father in heaven, oh, look, Lord, I know they've, they've stuffed up again, Dad, but, um, but can you let them off one last time? It's not interceding like that. Nor does it mean that Jesus has to keep dying for us again and again. 
that, that's a little bit of the Roman Catholic view of what Jesus is doing. It's why when you see a lot of Roman Catholic crucifixes, they're all, they're all got Jesus on the cross bleeding. It's as though he is to keep dying again and again for you. No, it's that Jesus interceding for us means that he is constantly in heaven presenting the finished work of the cross to his Father. He, he is the Lamb who was slain, who, who before his Father stands as our sacrifice. It's mercy won on the cross in the past, but, but applied actively to us today. That's actually the way the Old Testament sacrifices work. Do you remember here we are in the temple? If I was your priest, yeah, you've come to me. I take, say, say you're rich, I've got a goat yeah, off you. I take the goat. Uh, I'd sacrifice it here outside of the presence of God that the blood would pour out. I'd collect the blood in a bowl, and then I'd take the bowl into the next, the next court, the, the next level, to sprinkle the blood on the altar I'd take the sacrifice into the presence of God for you. So Jesus is sacrificed on the earth, on the cross. His blood is shed for us there. And then he takes that sacrifice permanently into the presence of God in the throne room of heaven. And he applies it for us every moment of every day. And he'll never stop doing that because he has an indestructible life. So here are the three applications, three big encouragements for you this morning. That means God does it always. See, our relationship with God depends on Jesus' work, not ours. What he has done and what he is doing. His present active application of his sacrifice to our lives. There is actually never a moment when he is not actively sustaining our relationship with God. There can be, I think, a danger that that we assume, well, I I came to trust in, in the Lord Jesus in the past and his death at the cross, but what I have to do now is knuckle down very hard, and if I try hard enough, I'll keep being a Christian. At worst, that becomes the sort of Roman Catholic cycle of I was baptized and that cleansed me through the blood of Jesus and then I've sinned, so I'll go to the priest and say confession, do my penance, I take the mass, I sin again. I have to go to the priest next week, do the confession, take the mass, I sin again. I'll go to the priest, say the confession, do the mass, sin again, get the last rites, die, don't go to heaven, go to purgatory. That's Roman Catholicism. And it's miserable. Because you never know you're right with God. And what Hebrews is saying, no, no, no. Every moment of every day, Jesus is actively applying his finished work to your life in the throne room of heaven. The Father never sees you except through the shed blood of the Son. God does it always. And that secondly means God delights in you always. You know there's only one type of Christian? I think sometimes we assume that, that there are sort of like many types of Christian. You know, there are those Christians that, that God's really pleased with because they, uh, they, uh, they are at every church service and prayer meeting and they've got a real sort of evangelistic zeal and God thinks, good job, glad you're on my team. And then there's sort of the Christians he's sort of willing to tolerate but he's not very happy with. You know, well, I've got to put up with you, I suppose, because, you know, in 1972, you prayed a prayer of commitment, you've stuffed up since then, but... I'll have to hang in there with you. But because Jesus 
is in heaven, actively interceding for us, presenting the finished work of the cross in our place, there is not one moment that God does not see you as righteous through His Son. It covers us for all time, His death on our part. So it's not the quality of our life, it's the quality of Jesus' life that matters. That the relationship of us to God will always be perfect and has, is always going to be perfect in the future But because it's not dependent on the way I feel or, or what I do. It's dependent on what Jesus has done and what he is doing, actively presenting the sacrifice that he has made to his Father. So, so even as you sin, even, even if you're trusting in Jesus Christ and you are deliberately doing something that you know distresses the spirit that dwells within you and brings the demand of God's justice into your life, Jesus is actively holding the shed blood of the cross before the Father in heaven. You are perfect before him. Even as you did it, as you're doing it, even as you're thinking, I just don't care. Jesus is actively holding the shed blood of the cross before his Father in heaven. There's no difference between Billy Graham and Bran, the bumbling believer. That all the time, same status. God always delights in you. And here's the last thing. God invites you to draw near, always. There's never a moment when Jesus' priesthood is not available to you. I think sometimes we feel, don't we, I've got to reach a certain level of purity to make prayer possible. You know, okay, I've really stuffed up, but if I go to church a couple of times, you know, and maybe, maybe read my Bible a bit more, then, then I'll be okay to enjoy a relationship with God again. We, we feel maybe we can't come into his presence because we're, we're feeling dirty about our sin or guilty about our failure or just distant because we've not really been paying him much attention really recently. But but Christ's permanent intercession means that he's already at work on our behalf and therefore we can waltz into the throne room of heaven. God says, draw near. Because we don't draw near through ourselves, we draw near through Jesus. See, what Jesus is doing is actively extending sympathy to us in our weakness. He's actively strengthening us through every battle. And he'll never tire of helping us. He's got an indestructible life. He's, he's not like our earthly friends. Our earthly friends might say, oh, I'm always there for you. They might even want to be always there for you. But they can never be always there for you because they're weak sinners who are mortal. They'll let you down. Jesus never will. Did you see what verse 25 again says? Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's able to save completely. Now, now don't get me wrong here, but I think this is quite simple, isn't it? You can't be more saved than completely, can you? If you're completely saved, can, can you be more saved than that? So if you're trusting in Jesus and he saved you completely, I think you might be completely saved forever. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. Do you know, do you know what? We tend to think of Christian, Christian maturity as um, a sort of theological stuff. Theological stuff is good, you know. Getting to know your Bible is good. 
It's what Enoch's doing at Moorlands. It's what Danny's doing at Oak Hill. It's what Will's doing at Gordon Conwell. Getting to know your Bible's good. But theological maturity is not about knowing more Bible texts. It's not actually even about having a sort of ready breath glow. It dates me. If I talk about the ready breath glow, half the people in the room haven't a clue what I'm talking about. Other half are thinking, oh, I love the 1970s. Okay, you think about the ready black glow, you know, where we sort of cruise through life with a, with a godliness and every problem falls by the wayside of our warm relationship of love with the Lord Jesus. And we tend to think that's what maturity is about, being like that. But, it, but in Hebrews, maturity is about seeing more clearly how wonderful Jesus is. You see, our writer, he doesn't answer the problem of people who are, who are thinking about drifting away from Jesus by saying... Do more! Stop it now! He answers it by saying, look, Jesus has done more, is doing more than you can possibly imagine. He's been made perfect forever. He's going to make you perfect forever. So the next time you think, I really must sort out my Christian life. No, no, you mustn't. You really must go to Jesus. And when you go to him, you'll find he's already there, as he has been all the time, actively mediating your relationship with God. And there's never been a moment when God was not for you as his precious child, whatever you were doing, forever. What's your greatest need? To draw near to this God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the King of peace and the King of righteousness the one who died offering up his perfect life to deal once and for all with our sin, the one who rose and has the power of an indestructible life, and the one who now lives to intercede for us in your presence, who actively mediates our relationship with you every moment of every day. Please help us to draw near to you through Jesus. For his name's sake. Amen.